Welcome back to the Book Club Commune with me, your host, Ivy Polizzi. Today we're going to be reading chapter three of What is to be Done. I have to apologize for this episode on multiple accounts. First off, on how long it took to finish this episode. I started recording this episode in December of 2021, just before my school let out for Christmas break. After that, I struggled to find a good place to record, and I bounced around parking lots and rooms to have a safe place to record where, you know, reactionaries wouldn't overhear and get upset and cause a fuss about it. That has been a struggle, and it's taken far too long to get this episode published. With that, a lot of the audio really jumps in quality between section to section, and I have to apologize for that. You may hear dogs in the background, especially the last two, and um, trucks in various parts. And for whatever reason, at least for the last section and maybe for the last two sections, my microphone did not connect to my phone. So it was my phone was recording from my phone audio rather than my microphone audio. Um, so the audio quality is not as good and the audio might be quieter. I can only apologize and hopefully the problem is fixed and it won't do it again. Um, I'm hoping. I'm hoping that this is recording properly now because I record these all at the end. So I'm hoping that it's working now and the audio is fine. Um, you might hear a dog chewing on a bone in the background right now, but that's all fine. Hopefully going forward there shouldn't be any more audio problems and hopefully I will be able to get um, all future episodes out much more frequently and more reliably. Um, I'm not going to make promises on a release schedule. Um, but we'll get to that later on. So without further any further ado, let's get into this episode. Chapter 3. Trade Union Politics and Social Democratic Politics. We shall start off again by praising Rabochai Dialo. Martinov gave his article in number 10 of Rabochai Dialo on his differences with Iskra, the title Exposure Literature and the Proletarian Struggle. He formulated the substance of these differences as follows. Quote, we cannot confine ourselves entirely to exposing the system that stands in it, the Labour Party's, path of development. We must also respond to the immediate and current interests of the proletariat. Iskra is in fact the organ of revolutionary opposition that exposes the state of affairs in our country, particularly the p political state of affairs. We, however, work and shall continue to work for the cause of labor in close organic contact with the proletarian struggle. End quote. One can help not one cannot help being grateful to Martinov for this formula. It is of outstanding general interest because substantially it embraces not only our disagreements with Rabochai Diallo, but the general disagreement between ourselves and the economists concerning the political struggle. We have already shown that the economists do not altogether repudiate politics, but they are constantly deviating from the social democratic conception of politics to the trade unionist conception. Martinov de deviates in exactly the same way, and we agree, therefore, to take his view as an example of economist error on the question. As we shall endeavor to prove, neither the authors of the special supplement to Rabbi Chaya Meisel, nor the authors of the manifesto issued by the self-emancipation group, nor the authors of the economic letter published in Iskra number 12, will have any right to complain about this choice. A. 
political agitation and its restriction by the economists. Everyone knows that the spread and consolidation of the economic struggle of the Russian workers proceeds simultaneously with the creation of a literature exposing economic conditions, i.e. factory and industrial conditions. These leaflets were devoted mainly to the exposure of the factory conditions, and very soon a passion for exposure was roused among the workers. As soon as the workers realized that the social democratic circles desired to and could supply them with a new kind of leaflet that told the whole truth about their poverty-stricken lives, about their excessive toil and their lack of rights, correspondents began to pour in from the factories and workshops. This exposure literature created a huge sensation, not only in the particular factory dealt with, the conditions of which were exposed in a given leaflet, but in all the factories to which news had spread about the facts exposed. And as the poverty and want among the workers in the various enterprises and in the various trades are pretty much the same, the truth about the life of the workers aroused the admiration of all. Even among the most backwards workers, a veritable passion was roused to go into print, a noble passion for this rudimentary war, form of war against the whole of modern social system, which is based upon robbery and oppression. And, in the overwhelming majority of the cases, these leaflets were in truth a declaration of war, because the exposures had a terrifying, terrifically rousing effect upon the workers. It stimulated them to put forward demands for the removal of the most glaring evils, and roused in them a readiness to support these demands with strikes. Finally, the employers themselves were compelled to recognize the significance of these leaflets as a declaration of war, so much so that in a large number of cases they did not even wait for the outbreak of hostilities. As is always the case, the mere publication of these exposures made them effective, and they acquired the significance of a strong moral force. On more than one occasion, the mere appearance of a leaflet proved sufficient to secure the satisfaction of all or part of the demands put forward. In a word, economic factory exposures have been and are an important lever in the economic struggle, and they will continue to be such as long as capitalism, which creates the need for the workers to defend themselves, exists. Even in the more advanced countries of Europe today, the exposure of the evils in some backward trade, or in some forgotten branch of domestic industry, serves as a starting point for the awakening of class consciousness, for the beginning of a trade union struggle, and for the spread of socialism. Recently, the overwhelming majority of Russian Social Democrats are almost wholly engaged in this work of organizing the exposure of factory conditions. It is sufficient to refer to the columns of Rabochaya Meisel to judge to what extent they were engaged in it. So much so, indeed, that they lost sight of the fact that this, taken by itself, is not in essence social democratic work, but merely trade union work. As a matter of fact, these exposures merely dealt with the relations between the workers in a given trade and their immediate employers, and all that they achieved was that the vendors of labor power learned to sell their commodity on better terms and to fight their purchasers of labor power over a purely commercial deal. These exposures could have served, if properly utilized by revolutionaries, as a beginning and constituent part of social democratic activity, but they could also have led with subservience to spontaneity, inevitably had to lead to a pure and simple trade union struggle and to a, to a non-social democratic labor movement. Social democrats lead the struggle of the working class not only for better terms for the sale of labor power, but also for the abolition of the social system which compels the propertyless to sell themselves to the rich. 
Social democracy represents the working class, not in relation to a given group of employers, but in its relation to all classes in modern society, to the state as an organized political force. Hence, it, it, it not only follows that social democrats must not confine themselves entirely to the economic struggle, they must not even allow the organization of economic exposures to become the predominant part of their activities. We must actively take up the political education of the working class and the development of its political consciousness. Now, after Zarya and Iskra have made the first attack upon economism, all are agreed on this, although some agreed only nominally, as we shall soon prove. The question now arises, what does political education mean? Is it sufficient to confine oneself to the propaganda of working class hostility to autocracy? Of course not. It is not enough to explain to the workers that they are politically oppressed, no more than it was to explain to them that their interests were antagonistic to the interests of their employers. Advantage must be taken of every concrete example of this oppression for the purpose of agitation, in the same way that we began to use concrete examples of economic oppression for the purpose of agitation. And inasmuch as political oppression affects all sorts of classes in society, inasmuch as it man manifests itself in various spheres of life and activity, in industrial life, civic life, and in personal and in family life, in religious life, scientific life, etc., etc., it is not evident that we shall not be fulfilling our task of developing the political consciousness of the workers if we do not undertake the organization of the political exposure of the autocracy in all its aspects. In order to carry on agitation around concrete examples of oppression, these examples must be exposed, just as it was necessary to expose factory evils in order to carry on economic agitation. One would think that this was clear enough. It, as it turns out, however, that all are agreed that it is necessary to develop political consciousness in all its aspects, only in words. It turns out that Rabbi Chai Diallo, for example, has not only failed to take up the task of organizing, or to make a start in organizing, all sides political, all sided political exposure, but is even trying to drag Iskra, which has undertaken this task, away from it. Listen to this. Quote, the political struggle of the working class is merely, it is precisely not merely, Lenin's comment, a more developed and a wider and more effective form of economic struggle, end quote, from the program of Robert Chidello, published in number one. Quote, the Social Democrats are now confronted with the task of, as far as possible, giving the economic struggle itself a political character, end quote, from Martinov and Robert Chidello, number 10. Quote, the economic struggle is the most widely applicable method of drawing the masses into active political struggle. From the resolutions passed by Congress of the League of Amendments, thereto two Congresses. As the reader will observe, all these postulates permeate Robert Chidello from its very first number to the recent issue, recently issued instructions from the editors, and all of them evidently express a single view regarding the political agitation and the political struggle. Examining this view from the standpoint of the opinion prevailing from all economists that political agitation must follow economic agitation. Is it true that in general the economic struggle, quote, is the most widely applicable method of drawing the masses into political struggle? It is absolutely untrue. All and sundry manifestations of police tyranny and autocratic outrage, in addition to the evils connected with the economic struggle, are equally widely applicable, 
as means of drawing in the masses. The tyranny of Zemsky Nechelinics, the flogging of the peasantry, the corruption of the officials, the conduct of the police towards the common people in the cities, the fight against the famine-stricken, and the suppression of the popular striving towards enlightenment and knowledge, the extortion of taxes, the persecution of religious sects, the harsh discipline in the army, the militarist conduct towards students, and the liberal intelligentsia. All these, and a thousand other similar manifestations of tyranny, though not directly connected with the economic struggle, do they, in general, represent a less widely applicable method and subject for political agitation and for drawing the masses into the political struggle? The very opposite is the case. Of all the innumerable cases in which the workers suffer, either personally or those closely associated with them, from tyranny, violence, and lack of rights, undoubtedly only a relatively few represent cases of police tyranny in the economic struggle as such. Why then should we, beforehand, restrict the scope of political agitation by declaring only one of the methods to be the most widely applicable when the social democrats have other, generally speaking, not less widely applicable means? The League attaches significance to this fact that it replaced the phrase most widely applicable mean method by the phrase a better method, contained in one of the resolutions of the Fourth Congress of the Jewish Labor League, Bund. We confess that it, we find it difficult to say which of those resolutions is the better one. In our opinion, both are worse. Both the League and the Bund fall into the error, partly perhaps unconsciously owing to the influence of tradition, of giving an economic trade unionist interpretation into politics. The fact that this error is expressed either by the word better or by the words most widely applicable makes no material difference whatsoever. If the League had said that political agitation on an economic basis is the most widely applied and not applicable method, it would have been right in regard to certain period in development of our social democratic movement. It would have been the right in regard to the economists and to many, if not the majority, of the practical workers of 1898 to 1901, who applied the method of political agitation to the extent that they applied it at all, almost exclusively on an economic basis. Political agitation on such lines was, was recognized and, as we have seen, even recommended by Rabbi Chaya Meisel and the self-emancipation group. Rabbi Chaya Diallo should have strongly condemned the fact that useful economic agitation was accompanied by harmful restriction of the political struggle. But instead of that, it declares the method most widely applicable by the economists to be the most widely applicable. What real concrete meaning does Martinov attach to the task of giving the economic struggle itself a political character, which he presents to social democracy? The economic struggle is the collective struggle for the, of the workers against their employers for better terms in the sale of their labor power, for better conditions in, of life and labor. The struggle is necessary for, necessarily a struggle according to trade, because conditions of labor differ very much in different trades, and consequently, the fight to improve these conditions can only be conducted in respect of each trade, trade unions in the western countries, temporary trade associations and leaflets in Russia, etc. Giving the economic struggle a political character means, therefore, striving to secure satisfaction for these trade demands, 
the improvement of conditions of labor in each separate trade by means of legislative and administrative measures, as Martin Knob expresses it on the next page of his article. This is exactly what the trade unions do and always have done. Read the works uh, and of the thoroughly scientific and thoroughly opportunist Mr. and Mrs. Webb, and you will find that the British trade unions long ago recognized and have carried out the task of giving the economic struggle itself a political character. They have been fighting for the right to strike, for the removal of all legal hindrances to the co cooperative and trade union movement, for laws protecting women and children, and for the improvement of conditions of labor by means of health and factory legislation, etc. Thus, the pompous phrase, giving the economic struggle itself a political character, which sounds so terrifically profound and revolutionary, serves as a screen to conceal what is, in fact, the tradition striving to degrade social democratic politics to the level of trade union politics. On the pretext of rectifying Iskra's one-sidedness, which, it is alleged, places a revolutionizing of dogma higher than revolutionizing of life, we are presented with the struggle for economic reform as if it were something entirely new. As a matter of fact, the phrase, giving the economic struggle itself a political character, means nothing more than the struggle for economic reforms. And Martinov himself might have come to this simple conclusion had he only pondered over the significance of his own words. Our party, he says, turning his heaviest guns against Iskra, could have, could and should have presented concrete demands to the government for legislative and administrative measures against economic exploitation, for the relief of unemployment, and for the relief of the famine-stricken, etc. Rabotradiello, number 10. Concrete demands for measures. Does this not mean demands for social reforms? And again, we must ask the impartial reader, do we slander the Rabotrai Dialoists, may I be forgiven for the clumsy expression, when we declare them to be concealed Bernsteinists for advancing their thesis about the necessity of fighting for economic reforms as their point of disagreement with Iskra? Revolutionary social democracy always included, and now includes, the fight for reforms in its activities, but it utilizes economic agitation for the purpose of presenting to the government not only demands for all sorts of measures but also and primarily the demand that it cease to be autocratic government moreover it considers it to be the duty its duty to present this demand to the government not only on the basis of economic struggle alone but on the basis of all manifestations of public and political life in a word it subordinates the struggles for reforms to the revolutionary struggle for liberty and for socialism as the part is as the part is subordinate to the whole martinov however resuscitates the theory of stages in a new form and strives to present its exclusively economic so to speak path of development for the political struggle by coming out at the this moment when the revolutionary movement is on the upgrade when an alleged special task of fighting for reforms, he is dragging the party backwards and is playing into the hands of both economic and liberal opportunism. To proceed, shamefacedly hiding the struggle for reforms behind the pompous thesis, giving the economic struggle itself a political character, Martinov ad advanced 
as if it were a special point exclusively economic and in fact exclusively factory reforms. Why did he do that? We do not know. Perhaps it was due to carelessness. But if it indeed he had something else besides factory reforms in mind, then the whole of his thesis, which we have just quoted, loses all sense. Perhaps he did it because he thought it was possible and probable that the government would make concessions only in the economic sphere. If that is what he thought, then it is a strange error. Concessions are also possible and are made in the sphere of legislation concerning flogging, passports, land compensation payments, r religious sex, the censorship, etc., etc. Economic concessions, or pseudo-concessions, are, of course, the cheapest and most advantageous concessions to make from the government's point of view, because by these means it hopes to win the confidence of the masses of the workers. For this very reason, we social democrats must under no circumstances create grounds for the belief or the misunderstanding that we are we are attached that we attach greater value to economic reforms or that we regard them as being particularly important etc such demands writes martinov concerning the concrete demands for legislative and administrative measures preferred to above would not only sound merely would not only be merely a hollow sound because promising certain palpable results they might not they might be actively supported by the masses of the workers. We are not economists, oh no. We are cringe as we only cringe as slavishly before the palpableness of concrete re results as do the Bernsteinists, the Prokopoviches, the Struves, the RMs, and the Tutti Quanti. We only wish to make it understood with Narcissus to poor love that all that which does not make palpable results is merely a hollow sound. We are only trying to argue as if the masses of the workers were incapable had, and had not already proved their capabilities, notwithstanding those who ascribe their own philistinism to them, of actively supporting every protest against the autocracy, even if it promises no palpable results whatever. Quote, in addition to its immediate revolutionary significance, the economic struggle of the workers against the employers and the government. The Lenin comment, economic struggle against the government, with two exclamation points, has also the significance that it constantly brings the workers face to face with their own lack of political rights. End of quote by Martinov. We quote this passage not in order to repeat what has already been said hundreds and thousands of times before, but in order to thank Martinov for this excellent new formula. The workers struggle, economic struggle, against the employers and the government. What a pear, what a pearl! What an immitable talent and skill in eliminating all partial disagreements and shades of differences among economists does this clear and concise postulate express the quintessence of economism from calling to the workers to join in the political struggle which they carry on in the general interest for the purpose of improving the conditions of all the workers. Continuing through the theory of stages to the resolution of the Congress on the most widely applicable, etc., economic struggle against the government is precisely trade union politics, which is very, very far from being social democratic politics. B. 
a tale of how Martinov rendered Plakhanov more profound. Martinov says, quote, Much water has flowed under the bridge since Plakhanov wrote this book, Tasks of the Socialists during the in the Fight Against the Famine in Russia. The Social Democrats, who for a decade led the economic struggle of the working class, have failed as yet to lay down a broad theoretical basis for party tactics. This question has now come to the fore, and if we should wish to lay down such a theoretical basis, we would certainly have considerably to deepen the principles of tactics that Plakhanov at one time developed. We would now have to define the differences between propaganda and agitation differently from the way in which Plakhanov defined it. By propaganda, we would understand the revolutionary eludication of the whole of the present system or partial manifestations of it, irrespective of whether it is done in a form capable of being understood by individuals or by the broad masses. By agitation, in the strict sense of the word, we would understand calling the masses to certain concrete actions that would facilitate the direct revolutionary intervention of the proletariat in social life, end quote. We congratulate Russian and international social democracy on Martinov's new, more strict, and more profound terminology. Up to now, we thought, with Plakhanov and with all the leaders of the international labor movement, that a propagandist dealing with, say, the question of unemployment must explain the capitalistic nature of crises, the reasons why crises are inevitable in modern society, must describe how present society must inevitably become transformed into socialist society, etc. In a word, he must present many ideas, so many indeed that they will be understood as a whole only by a comparatively few persons. An agitator, however, speaking on the same subject, will take it as an will take as an illustration of a, of a fact that is most widely known and outstanding among his audience, say, the death from starvation of the family, of an unemployed worker, the growing impoverishment, etc., and utilizing this fact, which is known to all and sundry, will direct all his efforts to presenting a single idea to the masses, i.e., the idea of senseless contradiction between the increase of wealth and increase of poverty. He will strive to rouse discontent and indignation among the masses against this crying injustice and leave a more complete explanation of this contradiction to the propagandist. Consequentially, the propagandist operates chiefly by means of the printed word. The agitator operates with the living word. The qualities that are are required of an agitator are not the same as the qualities required of a propagandist. Kautsky and Lafargue, for example, we call propagandists. Bebel and Gousseid, we call agitators. To single out a third sphere or third function of practical activity, and to include in this third function calling the masses to certain concrete actions, is sheer nonsense, because the call as a single act either naturally or inevitably, supplements the theoretical tract, propagandist pamphlet, and agitational speech, or represents a purely executive function. Take, for example, the struggle now being carried on by the German Social Democrats against the grain duties. The theoreticians write works of research on tariff policy and call, say, for a fight for commerce treaties and for free trade. 
The propagandist does the same thing in the periodical press, and the agitator does it in public speeches. At the present time, the concrete action of the masses takes the form of signing petitions to the Reichstag against the right raising of the grain duties. The call for this action comes directly from the theoreticians, the propagandists, and the agitators, and indirectly from those workers who carry the petitions lists to the factories and to private homes to get signatures. According to the Martinov terminology, Kautsky and Babel are both propagandists, while those who carry on the, p- the petition list are agitators. Is that not so? The German example recalled to my mind the German word Verballhornung, which literally translates to the ball horn. Johann Ballhorn, a Leipzig publisher of the 16th century, published a child's reader in which, as the custom, he introduced a drawing of a cock. But this drawing, instead of portraying an ordinary cock with spurs, portrayed it without spurs and with a couple of eggs laying near it. On the cover of the reader, he printed the legend, Revised Edition of Johann Ballhorn. Since that time, the Germans describe any revision that is really worsening as ballhorning and watching Martinov's attempts to render Plakhanov more profound involuntarily recalls Ballhorn to one's mind. Why did Martinov invent this confusion? In order to illustrate how Iskra devotes attention only to one side of the case, just, just as Plakhanov did a decade ago. According to Iskra, propagandist takes task force, agitational task, into the background, at least for the present. If we translate this last postulate from the language of Martinov into ordinary human language, because humanity has not yet managed to learn the newly invented terminology, we shall get the following. Quote, According to Iskra, the task of the political propaganda and political agitation force, into the background, the task of presenting to the government concrete demands for legislative and administrative measures that promise certain palatable results, or demands for social reforms, that is, if we are permitted just once again to employ the old terminology of old humanity, which has not yet grown to Martinov's level. We suggest that the reader compare this thesis with the following tirade. Quote, What astonishes us in these programs, the program advanced by revolutionary social democrats, is the constant stress that is laid upon the benefits of labor activity in Parliament, non-existent in Russia, and the manner in which, thanks to the revolutionary nihilism, the importance of workers participating in the government advisory committees on factory affairs, which do exist in Russia, or at least the importance of workers participating in municipal bodies, is completely ignored. End quote. The author of this tirade expresses more straightforwardly, more clearly, and frankly, the very idea which Martinov discovered himself. The, this author is R.M. in the special supplement to Rabochaya Meisel. C. Political Exposures and Training in Revolutionary Activity In advancing against Iskra, his theory of raising the activity of the masses of the workers, Martinov, as a matter of fact, displayed a striving to diminish this activity because he declared the very economic struggle before which all economists groveled to be the preferable, the most important, and the most widely applicable means of rousing this activity, and the widest field for it. 
This error is such a characteristic one, precisely because it is not peculiar to Martin Novellone. As a matter of fact, it is impossible to raise the activity of the masses of the workers only provided this activity is not restricted entirely to political agitation on an economic basis. And one of the fundamental conditions for this necessary expansion of political agitation is the organization of all-sided political exposure. In no other way can the masses be trained in political consciousness and revolutionary activity except by means of exposures. Hence, to conduct such activity is one of the most important functions of international social democracy as a whole, for even the existence of political liberty does not remove the necessity for such exposures. It merely changes the sphere against which they are directed. For example, the German party is strengthening its position and spreading its influence, thanks particularly to the untiring energy with which it is conducting a campaign of political exposure. Working class consciousness cannot be genuinely political consciousness unless the workers are trained to respond to all cases of tyranny, oppression, violence, and abuse, no matter what class is affected. Moreover, that response must be a social democratic response, and not one from any other point of view. The consciousness of the masses of the workers cannot be genuine class consciousness unless the workers learn to observe from concrete and above all topical political facts and events. Every other social class in all manifestations of the intellectual, ethical, and political life of these classes, unless they learn to practically apply the materialist analysis and the materialist estimate of all aspects of the life and activity of all classes, strata, groups, and of a population, those who concentrate the attention, observation, and consciousness of the working class exclusively, or even mainly upon itself alone, are not social democrats. Because, for its self-realization, the working class must not only have a theoretical, rather it must be more true to say, not so much a theoretical as a practical relationships between all the various classes of modern society. That is why the idea preached by our economists that the economic struggle is the most widely applicable means of drawing the masses into the political movement is so extremely harmful and extremely reactionary in practice. In order to become a social democrat, a working man must have a clear picture in his mind of the economic nature and the social and political features of the landlord, of the priest, of the highest state official, and of the peasant, of the student, and, the, and of the tramp. He must know their strong and weak sides. He must understand all the catchwords and sophisms by which each class and each stratum cam camouflages its self selfish strivings and its real nature. He must understand what interests certain and certain institutions and certain laws reflect and how they reflect them. This clear picture cannot be attained from books. It can be attained only from living ex examples and from exposures, following hot after their occurrence, of what goes on around us at a given moment, of which of what is being discussed, in whispers perhaps, by each one of its own way, of the meaning of such and such events, of such and such statistics, of such and such court sentences, etc., etc. These universal political exposures are an essential and fundamental condition for training the masses in revolutionary activity. Why is it that the Russian workers as yet display so little revolutionary activity in connection with the brutal way in which the police maltreat the people in connection with the persecution of the religious sects 
with the flogging of the peasantry, with the outrageous censorship, with the torture of the soldiers, and with the persecution of the most innocent cultural enterprises, etc. Is it because of the economic struggle does not stimulate them to this? Because such political activity does not pop promise palpable results? Because it produces little that is positive? No. To advance this argument, we repeat, is merely to shift the blame from the to the shoulders of others, to blame the masses of the workers for our own Philistinism, also Bernsteinism. We must blame ourselves, our remoteness from the mass movement. We must blame ourselves for being unable as yet to organize a sufficiently wide, striking, and rapid exposure of these despicable outrages. What we do, and what we must and can do, the most backward worker will understand or will feel that the students and religious sects, the musics and the authors are being abused and outraged by those very same dark forces that are oppressing and crushing him at every step of his life. And feeling that he himself will be filled with an irresistible desire to respond to these things. And then he will, he will organize catcalls against censor, the censors one day Another day, he will demonstrate outside the house of the provisional governor, who has brutally suppressed a peasant uprising. Another day, he will teach a lesson to the gendarmes in surplice, who are doing the work of the Holy Inquisition, etc. As yet, we have done very little work, almost nothing, to hurl universal and fresh exposures among the masses of the workers. Many of us, as yet, do not appreciate the bounden duty that rests upon us, but spontaneously follow in the wake of the drab everyday struggle in the narrow confines of factory life. Under such circumstances, to say that Iskra displays a tendency to belittle the significance of the forward march of the drab everyday struggle in comparison with the propaganda of brilliant and complete ideas, Martinov, means dragging the party backwards, defending and glorifying our unpreparedness and backwardsness. As for calling the masses to action that will come from itself immediately once energetic political agitation live and striking exposures are, are set going to catch some criminal red-handed and immediately to brand him publicly will have far more effect than any number of appeals the effect very very often will be such as will make it impossible to tell exactly who it was that appealed to the crowd and what exactly who suggested it this or that plan of demonstration, etc., calls for action, not in the general, but in the concrete sense of the term, can be made only at the pace of place of action. Only those who themselves go into action immediately can make appeals for action. And our business as social democratic publicists is to deepen and expand and intensify political exposures and political agitation. A word in passing about calls to action the only paper that prior to the spring events called upon the workers actively to intervene in a matter that certainly did not promise any palpable results for the workers, i.e. the drafting of the students into the army, was Iskra. Immediately after the publication of the order of January 11th on drafting the 183 students into the army, Iskra published an article about it in its February issue number two. And before any demonstration was started openly, called upon the workers to go to the aid of the st students, called upon the people boldly to take up the government's open challenge. We ask, 
How is it? Rem- um, how is the remarkable fact to be explained that although he talks so much about calls to action and even suggests calls to action as a special form of activity, Martinov said not one word about this call. Our economists, including Robert Chidaiello, were successful because they pandered to the uneducated workers. But the working class social democrat, the working class revolutionary, and a number and the number of that type is growing, will indignantly reject all this tar- talk about fighting for demands, promising palpable results, etc. Because he will understand that this is only a variation of the old song about adding a kopeck to the ruble. Such a working man will say to his counselors of Rabochaya Meisel and Rabochai Daiello, You are wasting your time, gentlemen. You are interfering with excessive zeal in a job that we can manage ourselves, and you are neglecting your own duties. It is silly of you to say that the social democratic task is to give the economic struggle itself a political character, for that is only the beginning. It is not the main task of the social democrat that the social democrats must fulfill all over the world, including Russia. The political police themselves often give the economic struggle a political character, and the workers themselves are beginning to understand whom the government supports. The economic struggle of the workers against the employers and the government, about which you make as about as much fuss as if you had made a new discovery, is being carried on in all parts of Russia, even the most remote, by the workers themselves who have heard about the strikes, but who have heard almost nothing about socialism. The activity you want to stimulate among the workers by advancing concrete demands, promising palpable results, we are already displaying in our and in our everyday petty trade union work, we put forward concrete demands, very often without any assistance whatsoever from the intellectuals. But such activity is not enough for us. We are not children to be fed on the sops of economic politics alone. We want to know everything that everybody else knows. We want to learn the details of all aspects of political life and to take part actively in every political event. In order that we may do this, the intellectuals must talk to us less about what we already know and tell us more about what we do not know and what we can never learn from our factory and economic experiences. That is, you must give us political knowledge. You intellectuals can acquire this knowledge, and it is your duty to bring us this knowledge in a hundred and a thousand times greater measure than you have done up to now. And you must bring us this knowledge, not only in the form of arguments, pamphlets, and articles, which sometimes, excuse our frankness, are very dull, but in form of live exposures of what our government and our governing classes are doing at this very moment in all spheres of life. Fulfill this duty with greater zeal, and talk less about the increasing of the activities of the masses of the workers. We are far from more active than you think, and we are quite able to support by open street fighting demands that you do not promise any palpable results whatsoever. You cannot increase our activity, because you yourselves are not sufficiently active. Be less subservient to spontaneity, and think more about increasing your own activity, gentlemen. D. What is there in common between economism and terrorism? In the last footnote, we quoted the opinion of an economist and of a non-social democratic terrorist who, by chance, proved to be in agreement with him. Generally speaking, however, between the two, there is not an accidental but necessary inherent connection about which we shall have to speak further on, but which we must 
must be dealt with here in connection with the question of training the masses in revolutionary activity. Side note, I'm not reading footnotes, so apologies that we apparently missed that in the footnote, but I can't be fucked to read footnotes here. So, side note over. The economists and modern terrorists spring from common root, namely subversive to spontaneity, which we dealt with in the preceding chapter as a general phenomenon, and which we shall now examine in relation to its effect upon political activity and political struggle. At first sight, our assertion may appear paradoxical, for the difference between the two, ap two appears to be so enormous, one stresses the drab everyday struggle, and the other calls for the most self-sacrificing struggle of individuals. But this is not a paradox. The economists and terrorists merely bow to different poles of spontaneity. The economists bow to the spontaneity of the pure and simple labor movement, while the terrorists bow to the spontaneity of the passionate indignant indignation of the intellectuals, who are either incapable of linking up the revolutionary struggle with the labor movement, or lack the opportunity to do so. It is very difficult indeed for those who have lost their belief, or who have never believed that this is possible, to find some other outlet for their indignation and revolutionary energy than terror. Thus, both forms of subservience to spontaneity we have mentioned are nothing more or nothing less than a beginning in the carrying out of the notorious Credo program. Let the workers carry on their economic struggle against the employers of the government. We apologize to the author of the Credo for expressing his views in Martinov's words, but we think that we have the right to do so because even the Credo says that in the economic struggle, the workers come up against the political regime. And let the intellectuals conduct the political struggle by their own efforts. With the aid of terror, of course. This is absolutely logical and inevitable conclusion which must be insisted upon. Even though those who are beginning to carry out this program did not themselves realize that it is inevitable, political activity has its logic quite apart from the consciousness of those who, with the best intentions, call for either terror or for, the, for forgiving the economic struggle itself a political character. The road to hell is paved in good intentions, and in this case, the good intentions cannot save one from being spontaneously drawn along the line of least resistance, along the line of the purely bourgeois credo program. Surely it is not an accident that many Russian liberals, avowed liberals and liberals who wear the mask of Marxism, wholeheartedly sympathize with the terror and strive to foster the spirit of terrorism that is running so high in the present time. The formulation of Sof Zovboda Revolutionary Socialist Group, which was formed with the objective, object of giving all of the possible assistance to the labor movement, but which, it, which included in its program terror and emancipation, so to speak, from social democracy. This fact once again confirmed the remarkable penetration of P.B. Axelrod, who for, literally foretold these results of social democratic wavering as far as the end of 1897, Modern Tasks and Modern Tactics, when he outlined his remarkable two prospects. All the subsequent disputes and disagreements among Russian Social Democrats are contained like a plant in the seed in those two prospects. From this point of view, it will be clear that Rabuchai Daiello, being unable to withstand the spontaneity of economism, has been unable to withstand the spontaneity of terrorism, that it would 
it would be interesting to note here the specific arguments that Zoboda have advanced in defense of terrorism. It completely denies the deterrent role of terrorism, the regeneration of revolutionism, but instead stresses the ex excitative significance. This is characteristic, first, as representing one of the stages of the breakup and decay of traditional pre-social democratic cycle of ideas which insisted upon terrorism. To admit now that the government cannot be terrified and therefore disrupted by terror is tantamount to condemning terror as a system of struggle, as a sphere of activity sanctioned by the program. Secondly, it is still more characteristic as an example of failure to understand our immediate task of training the masses in revolutionary activity. Svoboda advocates terror as a means of exciting the labor movement and giving it strong impetus. It's difficult to imagine an argument that disproves itself more than this one does. Are there not enough outrages committed in Russian life than that a special stimulant has to be involved? On the other hand, it is, is it not obvious that those who are not and cannot be roused to excitement even by Russian tyranny will stand by twiddling their thumbs even while a handful of terrorists are engaged in single combat with the government? The fact is, however, that the masses of the workers are roused to a high pitch of excitement by the outrages committed in Russian life, but we are unable to collect, if one may put it that way, and concentrate all these drops in streamlets of popular excitement, which are called for by conditions of Russian life, to a large, far larger extent than we imagine, but which it is precisely necessary to combine into a single gigantic flood. That is, can be accomplished, is irrefutably proved by the enormous growth of the labor movement, and the greed with which the workers devour political literature, to which we have already referred above. Calls for terror and calls to give the economic struggle itself a political character are merely two different forms of evading the most pressing duty that now rests upon Russian revolutionaries, namely to organize all-sided political agitation. Zovboda desires to substitute terror for agitation, openly admitting that as soon as, and as soon as intensified and strenuous agitation is commenced among the masses, its excitative function it will be finished, the regeneration of revolutionism. This proves precisely that both the terrorists and the economists underestimate the revolutionary activity of the masses, in spite of the striking evidence of the events that took place in the spring, and whereas one goes out in search of artificial stimulants, the other talks about concrete demands, but both fail to devote sufficient attention to the development of their own activity in political agitation and organization of political exposures. And no other work can serve as a substitute for this work, either at present time or at any other time. E, the working class as a champion of democracy. We have seen that the carrying on of whole wide political agitation and consequentially of the organization of all-sided political exposures is an absolute necessity and paramount task of activity. That is, if that activity is to be truly social democratic. We arrived at this conclusion solely on the grounds of the pressing needs of the working class for political knowledge and political training. But this presentation of the question is too narrow, for it ignores the general democratic task of social democracy in general, and of modern Russian social democracy in particular. In order to explain the situation more concretely, we shall approach the subject from an aspect that is nearer to the economist, namely from the practical aspect, everyone agrees, that it is necessary 
to develop the political consciousness of the working class. But the question arises, how is that to be done? What must be done to bring this about? The economic struggles merely bring the workers up against questions concerning the attitude of the government towards the working class. Consequentially, however much we may try to give the economic struggle itself a political character, we shall never be able to develop the political consciousness of the workers to the degree of social democratic consciousness by confining ourselves to the narrow economic struggle, for the limits of this task are too narrow. The Martinov formula has some value for us, not because it illustrates Martinov's ability to confuse things, but because it strikingly expresses the fundamental error that all economists commit, namely their conviction that it is possible to develop the class consciousness, the class political consciousness, of the workers from within the economic struggle, so to speak, i.e. making the economic struggle the exclusive, or at least the main starting point, making the economic struggle the exclusive, or at least the main basis. Such a view is radically wrong. Piqued by our opposition to them, the economists refused to ponder deeply over the origins of these disagreements, with the result that we absolutely failed to understand each other. It is as if we spoke in different tongues. Political consciousness can be brought, about, brought to the workers only from without, that is, only outside of economic struggle, outside of the sphere of relations between workers and employers. The sphere from which alone it is possible to obtain this knowledge is the sphere of relationships between all the various classes and strata and the state and the government, the sphere of the interrelations between all the various classes. For that reason, the reply to the question, what must be done in order to bring political knowledge to the workers, cannot be merely the one which, in the majority of cases, the practical workers, especially those who are inclined towards economism, usually contend themselves with, i.e., go among the workers. To bring political knowledge to the workers, the Social Democrats must go among all classes of the population, must dispatch units of their army in all directions. We deliberately select this awkward formula. We deliberately express ourselves in a simple, forcible way, not because we desire to indulge in paradoxes, but in order to stimulate the economists to take up their task, which they unpardonably ignore, to make them understand the difference between trade union and social democratic politics which they refuse to understand. Therefore, we beg the reader not to get excited, but to listen patiently to the end. Take the type of social democratic circle that has been most widespread during the past few years and examine its work. It has contacts with the workers. It issues leaflets in which abuses in the factories, the government's partiality towards the capitalists, and the tyranny of the police are strongly condemned. And it rests content with this. At meetings of workers, the discussion never, or rarely, gets beyond the limits of the, these subjects. Lecturers and discussions on the history of the revolutionary movement on, on questions of the home and foreign policy of our government, on questions of the economic evolution of Russia and of Europe, and the position of the various classes of modern society, etc., are extremely rare. Of systematically acquiring the extending contact with other classes of society, no one even dreams. The ideal leader, as the majority of the members of such circles picture him, in something, is something in the nature of a trade union secretary than a socialist political leader. Any trade union secretary, secretary an English one for instance, helps the workers to conduct the economic struggle, helps to expose factory abuses, explains the injustices of the laws and of measures that hamper the freedom to strike, and 
the freedom to picket, i.e. to warn all and sundry that a strike is proceeding at a certain factory, explains the partiality of arbitration, arbitration court judges who belong to the bourgeois classes, etc., etc. In a word, every trade union secretary conducts and helps the, to conduct the economic struggle against the employers and the government. It cannot be too strongly insisted that Democrats that this is not enough to constitute social democracy. The Social Democrats' ideal should not be a trade union secretary, but a tribune of the people, able to react in every manifestation of tyranny and oppression, no matter where it takes place, no matter what stratum or class of people it affects. He must be able to group all these manifestations into a single picture of political violence and capitalist exploitation. He must be able to take advantage of every petty event in order to explain his socialistic convictions and his social democratic demands to all, in order to explain to all and everyone the world historic significance of the struggle for the emancipation of the proletariat. Compare, for example, a leader like Robert Knight, the celebrated secretary and leader of the Boilermakers Society, one of the most powerful trade unions in England, with Wilhelm Liebknecht, and then, and then take the contrast that Martinov draws in his controversy with Iskra. You will see, I am running through Martinov's article, that Robert Knight engaged in, quote, calling the masses to certain concrete actions, end quote, while Liebknecht engaged in, quote, the revolutionary explanation of the whole of modern society, or various manifestations of it, end quote, that Robert formulated the immediate demands of the proletariat and ported to the manner in which they can be achieved, whereas Wilhelm Liebknecht, while, while doubting this, simultaneously guided the activities of various opposition strata, dictated them, to them a positive program of, his, of action. That it was precisely Robert Knight who strove as far as possible to give the economic struggle itself a political character, and was excellently able to submit to the government concrete demands promising certain possible results, while even engaged in one-sided exposures that Robert Knight attached more significance to the forward march of the drab and everyday struggle, while Liebnick attached more significance to the propaganda of brilliant and finished ideas, that Liebnick converted the, pe converted the paper that he was directing into an organ of revolutionary opposition, exposing the present system and particularly the political conditions which came into conflict with the interests of the most varied strata of the population, whereas Robert Knight worked for the for the cause of labor in close organic contact with the proletariat struggle. If by close and organic contact is meant the subservience to spontaneity, which we studied above from the example of Khrushchevy and Martinov, and restricted the sphere of his influence, conv convinced, of, of course, as is Martinov, that by that he intensified that influence. In a word, you will see that the De facto Martinov reduces social democracy to the level of trade unionism. And he does this, of course, not because, not because he does not desire the good of social democracy, but simply because he is a little too much in a hurry to make Plakhanov more profound instead of making the trouble to understand him. Let us return, however, to the ludication of our thesis. We said that a social democrat, if he really believes that it is necessary to develop the all-sided political consciousness of the proletariat, 
must go among all classes of the people. This gives rise to the questions. How is this to be done? Have we enough forces to do this? Is there a base for such work among all the other classes? Will this not mean a retreat or lead to a retreat from the class's point of view? We shall deal with these questions. We must go among all classes of people as theoreticians, as propagandists, as agitators, and as organizers. No one doubts that the theoretical work of social democrats should be directed towards studying all the features of society and political position of various classes, but extremely little is done in this direction as compared with the work that is done in studying the features of factory life. In committees and circles, you will meet men who are immersed, say, in the study of some special branch of the metal industry, but you'll hardly ever find members of organizations obliged, as often happens for some reason or other, to give up practical work, especially engage in the collection of material concerning some pressing question of social or political life which could serve as a means for conducting social democratic art among other strata of the population. In speaking of the lack of training of the majority of present-day leaders of the labor movement, we cannot refrain from mentioning the point about training in this connection also, for it too is bound up with the economic conception of close organic contact with the proletarian struggle. The principal thing, of course, is propaganda and agitation among all strata of the people. The West European Social Democrats find their work in this field facilitated by the calling of public meetings, through which all are free to go to, and by the parliament, in which neither a parliament or in which they speak to the representatives of all classes. We have neither a parliament nor the freedom to call meetings. Nevertheless, we are able to arrange meetings of workers who desire to listen to a social democrat. We must also find ways and means of calling meetings of representatives of all classes of the population that desire to listen to a democrat, for he who forgets that the communists support every revolutionary movement, that we are obliged for that reason to expound and emphasize general democratic task before the whole people, without for a moment concealing our socialistic convictions, is not a social democrat. He who forgets his obligation to be in, adv in advance of everybody in bringing up, sharpening, and solving every general democratic problem is not a social democrat. But everyone agrees with this, the impatient reader will exclaim. In the new instructions given by the last Congress of the League to the editorial board Robert Chai Diallo say, all events of social and political life that affect the proletariat either directly as a special class or as the vanguard of all revolutionary forces in the struggle for freedom should serve as subjects for political propaganda and agitation to Congresses, our italics. Yes, these are very true and very good words, and we would be satisfied if Rappuccidello understood them, and if it refrained from saying it in the next breath, things that are the very opposite of them. Ponder over the following piece of Martinov, re Martinov reasoning. On page 40, he says that Iskra's tactics of exposing abuses are one-sided, that however much we may spread distrust and hatred towards the government, we shall not achieve our aim until we have succeeded in developing sufficiently active social energy for its overthrow. This, it may be say in parenthesis, is the concern which we are already familiar for increasing the activity of the masses, while at the same time striving to restrict one's own activity. This is not the point we are now discussing, however. Martinov, therefore, speaks of revolutionary energy for overthrowing. 
But what conclusions does he arrive at? As in ordinary times, various social strata inevitably march separately. Quote, in view of that, it is clear that we social democrats cannot simultaneously guide the activities of various opposition strata. We cannot dictate to them a positive political action. We cannot point out to them in the manner they can fight for their daily interests. The liberal strata will themselves take care of the active struggle for their immediate interests, and this struggle will bring them up against our political regime. End quote. Thus, having commenced by speaking of revolutionary energy of the active struggle for the overthrow of the autocratic autocracies, Martinov immediately turns towards trade union energy and active struggle for immediate interest. It goes without saying that we cannot guide the struggle of st students, liberals, etc. for their immediate interest, but this is not the point we are discussing about. Most worthy economist, the point we are discussing is the possible and necessary participation of various social strata in the overthrow of autocracy. Not only are we able, but it is our duty to guide these activities of the various opposition strata if we desire to be the vanguard. Not only will the students and our liberals, etc., themselves take care of the struggle that will bring them up against our political regime, the police and the officials of the autoc autocratic government will see to this more than anyone else. But if we desire to be advanced Democrats, we must make it our business to simulate in the mind of those who are dissatisfied only with the university or with Zen, Stolf, etc. Contradiction conditions the idea that the whole political system is worthless. We must take upon ourselves the task of organizing a universal political struggle under the leadership of our party in such a manner as to obtain all the support possible of the opposition strata for the struggle of our party and for our party. We must train our social democratic practical workers to become political leaders to guide all the manifestation of this universal struggle able at the right time to dictate a positive program of struggle, of action, for the discontinued students, for the discontented Zemestrov counselors, for the discontented religious sects, for the offended elementary school teachers, etc., etc. For that reason, Martinov's assertion that, with regard to these, we can come forward merely in the negative role of the exposers of abusers. We can only, our italics, dissipate the hopes that we have in various government commissions is absolutely wrong. By understanding this, Martinov shows that he absolutely fails to understand the role of the revolutionary vanguard must really play. If the reader bears this in mind, the real sense of the following concluding remarks by Martinov will be made clear to him. Quote, Iskra is the organ of the revolutionary opposition which exposes the abuses of our system, particularly political abuses insofar as they affect the interests of the most diverse class of the population. We, however, are working and will continue to work for the cause of labor in close organic contact with the proletarian struggle. By restricting this, the sphere of our, of our influence, we intensify that influence. End quote. The true sense of this conclusion is as follows. Isker desires to elevate the working class to aging in politics, to which, owing to misunderstanding, lack of training, 
or by conviction, our practical workers frequently confine themselves to social democratic politics, whereas Rebel Chardella desires to degrade social democratic politics to trade union politics. And, and while doing this, they assure the world that these two positions are quite compatible with the common cause. Oh, sancta simplex Latin shit, whatever. To proceed, we have sufficient forces to be able to direct our propaganda and agitation among all classes of the population. Of course we have. Our economists are frequently inclined to deny this. They lose sight of the gigantic progress our movement has made from approximately 1894 to 1901. Like real Kavosists, they frequently live in the distant past, in a period in, of the beginning of the movement. At, the, at that time, indeed, we had astonishingly few forces, and it was perfectly natural and legitimate then to resolve to go exclusively among the workers and severely condemn any deviation from this. The whole task then was to consolidate our position in the working class. At the present time, however, gigantic forces have been attracted to the movement. The best representatives of the young generation of the educated classes are coming over to us. All over the country, there are people compelled to live in the provinces who have taken part in the movement in the past and desire to do so now, who are gravitating towards social democracy. In 1894, you could count the Social Democrats on your fingers. Of the, political, of the principal political and organizational shortcomings of our movement is that we are unable to utilize all these forces and give them appropriate work. We shall deal with this in detail in the next chapter. The overwhelming majority of these forces entirely lack the opportunity of going among the workers, so there are no cause so there are no grounds for fearing that we shall be able, we shall deflect forces from our main cause, and in order to be able to provide the workers with real, universal, and live political knowledge, we must have our own men, social democrats, everywhere among all social strata, in all position from which they can learn the inner springs of our state mechanism. Such men are required for propaganda and agitation. In a larger measure organization. Is there scope for activity among all classes of the population? Those who fail to see this also lag behind the spontaneous awakening of the masses as far as the class consciousness is concerned. The labor movement has aroused and is continuing to arouse discontent in some and hopes for support for others in, in opposite, for the opposition in others. And the consciousness of the intolerableness an inevitable downfall of autocracy, and still others. We would be politicians and social democrats only in name, as very often happens, if we fail to realize that our task is to utilize every manifestation of discontent and to collect and utilize every grain of rudimentary protest. This is quite apart from the fact that many millions of the peasantry, handicraftsmen, petty artisans, etc., always listen eagerly to the preachings of any social democrat who is at all intelligent. Is there a single class of the population in which no individuals, groups, or circles are to be found who are discontented with the state of tyranny and therefore accessible to the propaganda of social democrats as the spokesman of the most pressing and general democratic needs? Do those who desire to have a clear idea of what the political agitation of the social democrats among all classes and strata of the population should be like 
we would point to political exposures in the broad sense of the word as the principal, but of course not the sole form of this agitation. You must arouse in every section of the population that is all at all enlightened with a passion for political exposure. I wrote in my article, Where to Begin? Isker, number four, May 1901, with which I shall deal in greater detail later. Quote, we must not allow ourselves to be discouraged by the fact that the voice of political exposure is still feeble, rare, and timid. This is not because of general submission to political despotism, but because those who are able and ready to expose have no tribune from which to speak, because there is no audience to listen eagerly to and approve of what the orators say, and because the latter do not see anywhere among the people forces to whom it would be worthwhile directing their compl the complaint against the omnipotent Russian government. We are now in a position, and it is our duty, to set up a tribune for the national exposure of the Tsarist government. The tribune must be for a social democratic paper. End quote. The ideal audience for the, these political exposures is the working class, which is first and foremost in need of universal and live political knowledge, which is most capable of converting this knowledge into active political struggle, even if it does not promise palpable results. The only platform from which public exposure can be made is an all-Russian newspaper. Without a political organ, a political movement deserving that name is inconceivable in modern Europe. In this connection, Russia must undoubtedly be included in modern Europe. The press has long ago become a power in our country. Otherwise, the government would not spend tens of thousands of rubles to bribe it, subsidize the cat cause, the men and the menshevkis. And it is no novelty in autocratic Russia for the underground press to break through the wall of censorship and compel the legal and conservative press to speak openly on it. This was the case in the 70s and even in the 50s. How much broader and deeper are now the strata of the people willing to read the illegal underground press and to learn from it? How to live and how to die? To use the expression of the worker who sent the letter to Iskra, number seven. Political exposures are as much a declaration of war against the government as eco economic exposures are a declaration of war against the employers. And the wider and more powerful this campaign of exposure is, the more numerous and determined the class, the social class, which is declared war in order to commence the war, will be. The greater will be the moral significance of this declaration of war. Hence, the political exposures in themselves serve as a powerful instrument for disintegrating the system we oppose the means for diverting from the enemy his casual or temporary allies, the means for spreading enmity and distress among those who permanently share power with the autocracy. Only a party that will organize real, public exposures can become the vanguard of the revolutionary forces in our time. The word public has a very profound meaning. The overwhelming majority of the non-working class exposures in, in order to become the vanguard we must attract other classes, our sober politicians and cool businessmen. They know perfectly well how dangerous it is to complain, even against a minor official, let alone against the omnipotent Russia, Russian government. They will come to us with their complaints only when they see these complaints really have effect, and when they see that we represent a political force. In order to become this political force in the eyes of outsiders, a much persistent and stubborn work is required to raise our own cons consciousness, initiative, and energy. 
For this, it is not sufficient to stick the label Vanguard on rearguard theory in practice. But if we have to undertake the organization of the real and public exposure of the government, in what way will the class character of our movement be expressed? The overzealous advocates of close organic contact with the proletarian struggle? Well, ask us. The reply is, in that we social democrats will organize these public exposures in that all the questions that are brought up by the agitation will be explained in the spirit of social democracy without any concessions to deliberate or unconscious distortions of Marxism. In the fact that the party will carry on this universal political agitation uniting into one inseparable whole, the pressure upon the government in the name of the whole people, the revolutionary training of the proletariat by preserving his political independence, the guidance of the economic struggle of the working class, the utilization of its spontaneous conflicts with its exploiters, which rouse and bring into our camp increasing numbers of the proletariat. But one of the characteristic features of economism is this, its failure to understand this connection. More than that, it fails to understand the identity of the most pressing needs of the proletariat and all-sided political education through the medium of political agitation and political exposures with the needs of the general democratic movement. This lack of understanding is not only expressed in Marxist phrases, but also in the references to the class point of view, which is identical in, in meaning with these phrases. The following, for example, is how the authors of the economic letter in number 12 of Iskra express themselves. Quote, the, this fundamental drawback, overestimating ideology, is the cause of Iskra's inconsistency in regard in regard to the question of the relationship between social democrats and the various social classes and tendencies, by a process of theoretical reasoning and not by the group the party task would throw together with the party, Iskra arrived upon at the conclusion that it was necessary and immediately to take up the struggle against absolutism, but in all probability, sensing the difficulty of this task for the workers in the present state of affairs, not only sensing, but knowing perfectly well that this prob problem would seem less difficult to the workers and those economist intellectuals who are concerned about little children, for the workers are prepared to fight even for demands which, to use the language of the never-to-be-forgotten Martinov, do not promise palpable results, and lacking the patience to wait until the working class has accumulated forces for this struggle, Iskra begins to seek for allies in the ranks of the liberals and intelligentsia, end quote. Yes, yes, we have indeed lost all patience to wait for the blessed time that has long been promised to us by the conciliators, when the econ economists will stop throwing the blame for their own backwardness upon the workers and stop justifying their own lack of energy by the alleged lack of forces among the workers. We ask our economists, what does the working class accumulating forces for this struggle mean? Is it not evident that it means the political training of the workers, revealing to them all the aspects of our despicable octocracy? And is it not clear that precisely for this work, we need allies in the ranks of the liberal and intelligentsia who are prepared to join us in the exposure for the political attack on the Zemestov on the teachers and the statisticians on the students, etc. 
is this cunning mechanism so difficult to understand that, after all, has not P.B. Axelrod repeated to you over and over again since 1897, quote, the problem of Russian social democrats acquiring direct and indirect allies among non-proletarian classes will be solved principally by the character of the propagandist activities conducted among the proletariat itself, end quote. And Martinov and the other economists continue to imagine that the workers must first accumulate forces for trade union politics, quote, in the economic struggle against the employers and the government, end quote, and then go over, he supposed from trade, trade union training for activity, to social democratic activity. Quote, in its quest, continued the economist, Iskra not infrequently departs from the class points of view obscures class antagonisms, and puts into the forefront the general character of the prevailing discontent with the government, notwithstanding the fact that the causes and the degree of such discontent vary very considerably from among the allies. Such, for example, is Iskra's attitude towards Zemstov's vote. End quote. Iskra, it is alleged, promises the nobility who are discontented with the government's dole the aid of the working class, but does not say a word about the class differences among the strata of the people. If the reader will turn to the series of articles, the Autocracy and the Zemstova, numbers 4, 2, and 4 of Iskra, to which, in all probability, the author of the letter refers, he will find that these articles deal with the attitude of the government towards the mild agitation of the feudal bureaucratic Zemstov, Zemstvo and towards the independent activity of even the property classes. In these articles, it is stated that the workers cannot look indifferently while the government is carrying on the fight against Zemstvo, and the latter are called upon to give up making soft speeches and speak firmly and resolutely when making social democratic conference, conference the government in all its strength. What there is in this that the authors of the letter do not agree with is not clear. Do they think that the workers will not understand the phrases property classes and feudal bureaucratic zemstvo? Do they think that the simulating the zemstvo to abandon soft speeches and to speak firmly and resolutely is overestimating ideology? Do they think, do they imagine that the workers can accumulate forces for the fight against absolutism if they know nothing about the attitude of absolutism towards the zemstvo? All this remains unknown. One thing alone is clear, and that is that the authors of the letter have a very vague idea of the political task of social democracy are. This is revealed still more clearly by the remark, quote, such also, i.e. also obscures class antagonisms, is Iskra's attitude towards the student movement, end quote. Instead of calling upon the workers to declare means of public demonstrations, that the real center of unbridled violence and outrage is not the is not the students, but the Russian government, Iskra, number two. We should no doubt have inserted arguments in the spirit of Rabuchaya Meisel. And such ideas were expressed by social democrats in the autumn of 1901, after the events of February and March, on the eve of, the, of a fresh revival of the student movement, which revealed that even in the sphere of spontaneous protest against the autocracy is outstripping the conscious social democratic leadership of the movement. The spontaneous striving of the workers to defend the students who were beaten up by the police and the Cossacks 
is outstripping the conscious activity of the social democratic organizations. And yet in other activities, continues the author of the letter, Iskra condemns all compromises and defends, for example, the intolerant conduct of the Gwisedists. We would advise those who usually so conceitly and frivolously declare in, in connection with the disagreements existing in the contemporary Democrats that the disagreements are unimportant and would not just suffice but to ponder very deeply over these words. Is it possible for those who say that we have done astonishingly little to explain the hostility of the autocracy towards the various classes and to inform the workers of such of the opposition of the various strata of the population towards autocracy and to work successfully in the same organization with those who say that such work is compromised, evidently compromised with the theory of the economic struggle against the employers of the government. We urge the necessity of introducing the class struggle in the rural district on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the emancipation of the peasantry, number three and spoke of the irreconcilability between the local government bodies and the autocracy in connection to the Witte's secret memorandum, number four. We attacked the feudal landlords and the government, which served the latter on the occasion of the passing of the new law, number eight. And we welcomed the illegal Zemstvo Congress that was held. We urged the Zemstvo to stop making degrading physicians, number eight, and to come out and fight. We encouraged the students who had begun to understand the, and the need for political struggle and to take up that struggle, number three. And at the same time, we lashed out at the barbarous lack of understanding revealed by the adherents of the purely student movement, who called upon the students to abstain from taking part in street demonstrations, number three, in connection with the manifesto issued in, by the executive committee of the Moscow student on February 25th. We exposed the census senseless dreams and the lying hypocrisy of the cunning liberals of Russia, number five. And at the same time, we commented on the, with, on the fury with which peaceful writers, eight professors, scientists, and well-known liberal, liberal Zemstvoists were handled in the government's mental dungeons, number five, entitled A Police Raid on Literature. We exposed the real significance of the program, of state concern for the welfare of the workers and welcomed the valuable admission that it is better by granting reforms from above to forestall the demand for such reforms forward. Number six, we encourage the protest of the statisticians. Number seven, and, cons and censure the strike-breaking statistician. Number nine, he who sees in these tactics the obscuring of the class consciousness of the proletariat and the compromise with liberalism just that he absolutely fails to understand the true significance of the program of the credo and is carrying out that program de facto, however much he may deny this. Because by that he dragged social democracy towards the economic struggle against the employers and the government, but yields to liberalism, abandons the task of actively intervening in every liberal question, and of defining his own social democratic attitude towards such questions. F. Again, slanderers. Again, mystifiers. These polite expressions were uttered by Rabbi Dalo, which in this way answers our charge that it indirectly prepared the ground 
for converting the labor movement into an instrument of bourgeois democracy. In its simplicity of heart, Rabashai Diallo desired that his ac- this accusation was nothing more than a polemically sally, as if to say, these malicious doctrinaires can only think of saying unpleasant things about us. And now what can be more unpleasant than being an instrument of bourgeois democracy? And so they print in heavy type of refutation, nothing but downright slander to Congress's mystification, masquerade. Like Jupiter, Rabichadeo, although it has little resemblance to Jupiter, is angry because it is wrong and proves by its hasty abuse that it is incapable of understanding its opponent's mode of reasoning. And yet, with only a little reflection, it would have understood why all subservience to the spontaneity of the mass movement and any degrading of social democratic politics, the trade union politics, mean precisely preparing the ground for converting the labor movement into an instrument of bourgeois democracy. The spontaneous labor movement by itself is able to create, and inevitably will create, only trade unionism and bourgeois politics. The fact that the working class participates in the struggle, in political struggle, and even in political revolution, does not in itself make politics social democratic politics. Rabbi Chai Diallo imagines that bourgeois democracy in Russia is merely a phantom. Happy people, like, like the ostrich, they bury their heads in the sand and imagine that everything around has disappeared. A number of liberal publicists who mouth after mouth, month after month, proclaim to the world that their triumph over the collapse and even the disappearance of Marxism. A number of liberal newspapers, S. Petersburg Visky, Vedemosti, Ruskiyak, Vedemosti, and many others, which encouraged the liberals to bring to the workers the Britano conception of the class struggle and the trade union conception of politics, the galaxy of critics of Marxism, whose real tendencies were so well disclosed by the credo and whose literary products alone circulate freely in Russia, the animation among revolutionary non-social democratic tendencies, particularly after the February and March events. All these are, of course, mere phantoms. All these, of course, have nothing at all to do with bourgeois democracy. Robert Chandaiello and the authors of the Economic Letter, published in Iskra Number 12, should ponder over the reasons why the events in the spring excited such animation among the revolutionary, non-social democratic tendencies based in the reason increasing the authority and the prestige of the social democracy. The reason was that we failed to cope with our task. The masses of the workers proved to be more active than we are. We lacked adequately trained revolutionary leaders and organizers, aware of the mood prevailing among the opposition strata, and able to march at the head of the movement, convert the spontaneous demonstrations into a political demonstration, broaden its political character, etc. Under such circumstances, our backwardness will inevitably be utilized by the more mobile and more energetic non-social democratic revolutionaries and the workers, no matter how strenuously and self-sacrificing they may be, fight the police and the troops, and no matter how revolutionary they may act, will prove to be merely a force supporting these revolutionaries. The rear guard of bourgeois democracy, and not the social democratic vanguard. Take, for example, the German Social Democrats, who weak side 
upsides alone our economist, economist desire to emulate. Why is that not a single political event takes place in Germany without aid adding to the authority and prestige of social democracy? Because social democracy is always found to be in the advance of all others in its revolutionary estimation of every event and in its championship of every protest against tyranny. It does not soothe itself by arguments about the economic struggle, bringing the workers up against their own lack of rights, and about concrete conditions fatalistically impelling the labor movement onto a path of revolution. It intervenes in every sphere and in every question of social and political life. In the matter of Wilhelm's refusal to endorse a bourgeois progressive as city mayor, our economists have not yet managed to convince the Germans that this is in fact a compromise with liberalism. In the question of the law against the publication of immoral publications and pictures, in the question of the government influencing the election of professors, etc., etc., everywhere social democracy is found to be found to be ahead of all others, rousing political discontent among all classes and rousing the sl sluggards pushing on the laggards, and providing a wealth of material for the development of the political consciousness and political activity of the proletariat. The result of this is that even the avowed enemies of socialism are filled with respect for this advanced political fighter, and sometimes are important document from bourgeois and even from bureaucratic and court circles makes its way by some miraculous means, into the offices, into the editorial office of Wolfwatz. End of chapter three of what is to be done. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Book Club Commune. Next episode, we're going to be finishing up what is to be done with chapter four. That might be a two-parter because I am firmly in the in the belief that Lennon had no idea how to format a book when he wrote What is to be Done. And What is to be Done is an extremely long chapter. If you thought this episode was long, if I do what chapter four in one episode, it will be even longer. So I might just split it up into two episodes just to save time. After that, we'll be going into imperialism, uh, I'm going to be cutting out all the graphs because I'm not going to be explaining that over text. That's boring and I do not have the mental capacity to do that. Um, imperialism will go a thousand times faster, however, because Lenin learned how to edit between what is to be done and imperialism. So much, I'll probably read multiple chapters in an episode because of it. With all that being said, Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Welcome back to 2021, or 2022 even. Happy New Year, Merry Christmas. All the holidays, any holiday that you celebrate, happy holidays. It's over now, whoops. Um, good luck going back to school, rip. Anyways, I'm glad that you all have listened. Hopefully we can get a good series of episodes published in 2022. I'm looking forward to finishing up Lennon maybe hitting some Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon, and then maybe getting into St. Ingalls as well. Pretty optimistic, I think, I'll get through all of that, considering how long On Violence by Fanon is. 80 pages, and it's dense, but in a good way. Hope, let's see where the year takes us. 
and good luck to all of you in your actions. Solidarity forever and keep on reading. Thank you.